why don't we why don't we turn to the Lord in prayer as we get started? Our Father, we bow before you. You are worthy of all worship. Because you are the one who created all things. You are the one who sustains and provides for all things. You are the one who will one day judge all of creation and remake it, the new heavens and the new earth. We sure look forward to that day when the lion lies down with the lamb, when there's no more sin, no more sickness, no more sorrow. Every tear that we ever cried, you've caught and there will be no more tears in glory. But until then, Lord, we readily recognize that we live on sin-cursed soil. This life is challenging. It's full of difficulties and trials, heartache. Father, I pray for I pray for those who are who are struggling right now, who are discouraged, who are carrying a burden. You say that you are the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our tribulations. Father, I pray that you would comfort those who are hurting, those who are struggling, those who are burdened. Comfort them in their trial and thank you for then the promise that that, that comfort we receive then eventually we can turn around and offer that comfort and that hope to others when they meet trials. Father, we pray for Pastor as he's in Utah. Um, Would you just bless his ministry there as he preaches your word, encourage the folks of First Baptist Church there, encourage Pastor South as he um, mourns his wife's passing, give him strength. And Father, then we, we pray for this time, Your gospel is your power for salvation to everyone who believes. It is your word that is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Every promise you have made, you will keep. And your grace is sufficient for us each and every day. Yet, as we just sang, all the fitness, let us not linger because of conscience, We don't have to try to get our act together to come to you. We can come to you broken and weary, sinful and wicked as we are. All the fitness that you require is to feel, to know our need of you. So we come with hearts humbled before you, admitting that we are sinners and that we are sinful, that we struggle, that we have weakness, that we are ultimately failures. And yet, because of the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, our sinful rebellion against you, Jesus paid for it. And he rose from the dead so that for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. We're justified. We're free. Our sins are forgiven. We're redeemed. And we're your children. Thank you so much for this privilege that by your word of truth, you have begotten us again. And yet, Father, we still live in this world We're tempted by the worldly things around us. We're tempted to live for the here and now instead of for eternity. So we pray that you would pierce our hard hearts with the text of James 4 to identify our sinful idolatry, how we exalt things as if they were gods and we live for things that are just gifts instead of living for you the giver of every good and perfect gift. So Father, we pray your blessing on our time now. Enlighten our minds that we may understand your truth and then empower us through your spirit this week to apply it as doers of the word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so James chapter four. James chapter four. And like I said, we're in this study, Life Lessons with James. So each time I have the privilege of preaching, that's what we're doing. And we're all the way in chapter 4, so we've made it quite a a distance. But let's review just a little bit. Here's the big idea today is worldly conflicts. That's what we're talking about in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. But let's review a little bit because it's been a few weeks. The key theme of the book of James is genuine faith. In other words, what James is doing is he's saying, if you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's going to impact your life. 
it changes us. We can't just say, yes, I believe in Jesus and live a life unchanged because genuine faith works. Not we work to have genuine faith, but if we have genuine faith, there is evidence, there's fruit in our lives. That's what James is talking about. And he illustrates that a number of different ways as we work through the book. We've covered chapters 1, 2, and 3. Chapter 1, the big idea, is faith tested. Faith tested. And our faith is tested in three primary ways. By our response to trials, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. He, he also says our faith is tested by our response to temptation. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. We'll come back to that thought, because that passage interacts with the passage we have at hand. The third way our faith is tested is by our response to the word of God. Whether or not we are just hearers of the word who gaze into the mirror of scripture, as it were, and identify, the spirit identifies areas in our lives in which we do not live up, to God's standard he gives us in his word. A hearer of the word sees that. They say, yeah, I've got some issues. Oh, well, and they walk away. But James says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Chapter two, as it relates to genuine faith, is faith enacted, faith in action, if you will. First, an impartial faith. This is faith versus favoritism. He gives the illustration. If someone walks in the back door and one is dressed just splendidly in rich people, rich people get up and then a poor guy walks in and he's dirty and he's smelly and he's got shaggy clothes. Do we treat the poor man any differently than we would the rich person? He gives that illustration. He says, my brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And the number two faith enacted is an operative faith. He says, faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. Genuine faith shows up in the day-to-day details of our lives. Finally, we just finished last time, chapter 3, is faith exposed. Our faith is exposed, namely by our tongues. We might be able to hide what we really think until it comes out of our mouths. Our faith is exposed. He talks about the power of the tongue. It has power to destroy. It has power to, to help and to build up. But also, he talks about the pipeline of the tongue, if you will. That's my word. What he talks about is wisdom from above. He says, wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason. And on it goes. And he says that a harvest of righteousness is the harvest for one who sows the seeds of peace. That's what we just finished in chapter 3. And now we get to chapter 4. This is our faith opposed. Faith opposed. And our faith is opposed by worldliness. And we'll talk about how James defines worldliness. But he's he's talking about, first of all, our text today is worldly conflict. Worldliness shows up in the conflict that we have in our interpersonal relationships. Number two, James gives us the solution to worldliness. And we'll just touch on that today. That'll be the next sermon. But it's just a beautiful text that pictures for us what it means to humble ourselves, and to receive the grace of God. And finally then, he talks about worldly planning. Planning as if God had no say in our lives. And then chapter 5 is faith finished. Faith finished. He says, endure, pray, and encourage one another. So we'll look at that in the weeks ahead, Lord willing. And if the Lord comes back before it, we'll just rejoice in that, and we'll understand James a whole lot better. Let's look at the text, shall we? James chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts, that war in your members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because you ask not. You ask and receive not, because you ask amiss, that you may consume it upon your lusts. You adulterers and adulteresses, know you not 
that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit that dwells in us lusts to envy? But he gives more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resists the proud, but gives grace unto the humble. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The songs we sang were not chosen haphazardly. They were leading us to this thought of our wicked hearts that are idolatrous and arrogant, but of the grace of God that is available to the humble. That was come ye sinners, poor and needy. We are sinners, poor and needy, weak, struggling because of sin. And yet God invites us to come to Christ, to receive his grace, but it necessitates humility. All the fitness he requires is to feel our need of him. We are needy. And so we come to God and we say that, God, I need your help. And that's what we want to look at this morning. This big idea of worldliness, our faith is opposed by worldliness. Today we're looking at the worldly conflicts. And here's the big idea. Worldliness, worldliness breeds conflict. Worldliness breeds conflict. If we look at our interpersonal relationships, that's our relationships with one another, and we see strife, anger, conflict, tension, irritability, frustration, grumpiness, you name it, if we see those sinful fruits, what is the root? James identifies it as worldliness. Worldliness. So we'll look at these as we go, the source of conflict, then the slippery slope of conflict, the selfishness, the spiritual state, and then we'll touch on the solution to conflict. Um, But notice, this text is not unrelated to the text that we just finished last time. James 3, 13 to 18, what was the big idea there? It was peace and wisdom from above. He says, but if you have envy, bitter envy and jealousy or selfish ambition in your hearts, do not lie and boast against the truth. He says, this wisdom does not descend from above, but it's earthly, it's fleshly, and it's devilish. And so with that in mind, then he transitions. He asked the question in chapter 3, verse 15, Sorry, verse 13. Um, Maybe I, oh, I do have this. He says, who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? And then he answers that question. Who is wise among you? Now he asks, chapter four, verse one, from whence or where do wars and fightings come from among you? So you see, he, he says among you. Oh, that's an interesting connection. He also brings up the word jealousy, Um, It's translated differently in chapter 4, verse 2. Let me find it here. Um, Yeah, chapter 4, verse 2, he says, you kill and desire to have. That's the same word as back in verse 14 and verse 16, where it was translated envying. Um, And the common theme is peace. Genuine faith is peaceful. Genuine faith is peaceful. So let's think about it. Um, So a few observations to make as we get started. Sorry, this is really small. I can't see a thing on it. Let's make it big. There we go. Now we can see it a little better. Sorry, I think my eyesight's going. I don't know what's happening. Does it? Oh, man, bummer. Okay, so now I can read it a little bit better. So just a couple observations to make. Um, We see he asks the question, what causes quarrels? And then who is wise among you? Back in verse 13, the connection there. But also, as we go through this, we're going to notice there's a lot of military language that James uses. Battle, wars, fighting, conflict. These are all military terms talking about war and battle. Hmm. So there's a couple reasons people propose for why James uses such strong vocabulary. Because we said it at the beginning and we've said it multiple times since. 
James has a tendency not to pull punches. He says it how it is. He doesn't really just let us off the hook. And he uses this strong vocabulary. A couple reasons that could be. First of all, obviously, he's using them as metaphors, saying your sinful conflict is like a war, like a battle. Um, Some, though, would say we don't want to weaken the language, and they think that maybe James's audience was actually struggling with violence as a solution to church quarrels. Possible. Um, But then, interestingly enough, you get down there in verse 2, and it says you kill or you murder. If James's audience were actually murdering one another as a solution to their quarrels within the body, do you think James would have said it this weekly? It might have been a little stronger statement. So you can think about that for what it's worth. Um, But at, at the least, there is some serious sinful conflict taking place. But one thing also to notice is all these words that James uses are used Um, elsewhere as metaphors. In other words, they're a way that is describing quarrels between people. So we'll look at that as we go. So first off, we're thinking about worldliness breeds conflict. So the question is the source of the conflict. Where do wars and fightings come from among us? Wars, this is an interesting word, Palamas in Greek. Um, it comes up several times in the New Testament as well as in the LXX. That's just um, Roman numerals for 70. And it means the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the scriptures that often Jesus and the disciples would have been reading out of. Um, but this word, it's used primarily of physical military conflict, which that's, that's kind of interesting. Like Joshua chapter 11. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. He made war. Well, that's physical military conflict. They're going to battle and duking it out. And you've got a dozen references up there. Hebrews chapter 11, there's a New Testament reference. It's talking about those who demonstrated faith in the past. Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. It says, they clenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight. Waxed valiant in fight. That's a military conquest term. But it is used, at least here in James chapter 4, of hostility, of antagonism, of tension between Christian brothers and sisters. And so that's the word, that's the first word from whence come wars among you. Then the second word, fightings. From whence come wars and fightings among you? This is another word. It's make. Um, It's more often translated as it relates to interpersonal conflict. So, but it also was used to refer to physical military battles as well, like Joshua 4.13. About 40,000 prepared for war passed over before the Lord unto battle to the plains of Jericho. Okay, they're arms for battle. That's pretty obvious, an army going to war. But it's translated multiple times in the New Testament um, as it relates to interpersonal conflict. Um, Titus 3.9 says, But avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. So you see there, this striving, this tension, this conflict between people. So these words, you can look up more of those texts and go and think on them. The Proverbs ones are interesting though. Um, Proverbs 15, 18, a wrathful man stirs up strife. That's the word, strife, conflict, tension. But he that is slow to anger appeases strife. Proverbs 17, 19, He loves transgression that loves strife. Strife. Proverbs 30, verse 33. Um, Surely the churning of milk brings forth butter, and the wringing of the nose brings forth blood. So the forcing of wrath brings forth strife. That's an apt picture. When you twist your nose too much, it starts to bleed. When you churn the milk, eventually butter comes out. Similarly, when you force Anger. When anger is your go-to, 
eventually it results in strife. We're not unacquainted with this. So he says, where do these wars and fightings come from among you? Where do they come from among you? He doesn't say out there in the world. He doesn't say, why are all the unbelievers, all the lost, why are they having constant war and conflict? No, he says in here, why is there conflict? Why are you angry? Why are you fighting with your Christian brother and sister? He says these conflicts are among you. Well, that makes us think, what were the content of these conflicts? What was James's audience arguing about? Isn't it interesting James doesn't actually tell us? He keeps it general. Maybe there were multiple things they were arguing about. But whatever it is, um, James highlights the selfish spirit and the bitterness as the source of the conflicts that were occurring. So it has pretty apt application for us as well. Let's look at the next phrase. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? James identifies for us the source of our conflict. He says, they, don't they come from your lusts? Well, this is an interesting word. Hedonon in Greek. Does that sound like any English word we know? Hedonism. And hedonism is um, the pursuit of pleasure. And it's a philosophical system that says pleasure is the highest good. So we get that word from it. And in Greek, it means very similar. It's pleasure. It's the state or condition of experiencing pleasure or for any reason. Pleasure, delight, enjoyment, pleasantness. And it's interesting, the term can be neutral. It can be neutral. However, um, in the New Testament, all five times that it's used which are on the screen, Luke 8, Titus 3, James 4, 2 Peter 2. Yeah, 2 Peter 2 or 1? Sorry, my, my notes say different. We'll, we'll have to check that, 1 Peter 2 or 2 Peter 2. All five times, though, that it's translated, it's used in a negative sense as a metaphor for spiritual conflict. Um, Oh, that's why I was looking down at the next one. 2 Peter 2. 2 Peter 2.13. Let me read that. And shall receive the reward of unrighteousness, as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. Spots they are and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. So we get this picture of people who are just promoting selfish pleasure in the church gathering. Okay. Interesting. So he says, don't your sinful conflicts come from your own lusts, our pleasures? But then he says that war in your members, that war, this is a Greek word, stratuo, strategy. It's a military term. They're in conflict and it's strategic conflict. But James uses it. He says, these lusts, these pleasures are at war inside of us. He says the war is not first and foremost out there. It starts in here. It starts in our hearts. Well, that's interesting. Um, The word it means to engage in a conflict, to wage battle, to fight. Peter uses the same word in 1 Peter 2. See, this one's 1 Peter 2. The first one is 2 Peter 2. He uses it in a very similar context. He says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain. That means stay away from. Fleshly lusts, there's the word, which war against the soul. Our lusts, our pleasures, our desires are at war against our souls. They're at war, he says, in our members. They're at war in our members. And this word, this word is very similar to our English word members because you could use that word in English to refer like to a member of my body. It's my member. It's my hand. That's one of my members. But also we could use it in the sense of in a gathering. Hey, you're a member of this church. Here you are. You're a member of this meeting. So there's two ways it could be used, and it can be the same in Greek. So you can think about, is James saying your lusts are at war in among you, as in among the church, or is it at war 
within us. Hmm. Okay, interesting, interesting. We just saw, though, 1 Peter 2. Where did he say the lusts were warring against? Against our soul. Against our soul. Um, and James actually just used this word back in chapter 3. If you just look back, chapter 3, verse 5. Members, he says, even so the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire of hell. So what we find is these lusts, these pleasures are at at war within us. There's a conflict inside of us before it ever comes outside. Does that make sense? That is essential to understanding the source of conflict. One more, Romans chapter 7, Paul uses the word where he's describing, he says, the good that I do want to do, I don't do it. But the bad that I don't want to do, I keep doing it. He says, oh, woe is me, oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And he says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory in Jesus Christ. But in that context, he says, Romans 7.22, For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, that's our word, in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. He says this law of sin is waging war. That's the same word as what we have in James chapter 4. The pleasures are at war within us. He uses the same root word there, that these, this law of sin is waging war against us in our members. That's just a pretty neat connection there. Okay, so here's the question. The source of conflict. Where do wars and fightings come from among us? Why can't we stop quarreling? Why is there so much tension? James says it comes from inside of us. The source of our conflict is our own desires for pleasure. Our lusts. So let me illustrate it a couple ways. And I don't have a water bottle, but pretend I did. Say I have a water bottle and I take the cap off and it's filled with water and I shake it a little bit with the cap off. What do you think is going to happen? Water's going to probably spill out. Why does the water come out when I shake it? Okay, maybe because it doesn't have a lid on or because I shook it. Well, why didn't milk come out? It's because water was in it. Take another illustration. I have a mug and I fill it with some boiling water and I place a tea bag in that hot water. What's going to happen to the tea bag? It's going to begin to release all of its wonderful teaness. Well, why does the tea come out when the boiling water hits it? It's not just because of the boiling water, it's because the tea is inside the tea bag. The same is true in our lives. Why is there conflict? Why is there anger? Why is there strife and quarrels and fights? It's because what's in us comes out. If we have, for instance, say Galatians 5, if we're filled with the Spirit and we're walking in the Spirit and the Spirit is controlling our heart and the Word of God is filling our hearts and minds, what might come out? Could it be the fruit of the Spirit? like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. When the hot water hits, whatever is inside will come out. When life shakes us up and it's a trial, what's inside comes out. And that's the goodness of God. You can go and look at Deuteronomy chapter 8. Moses asks, he says, why did God lead us all these years through the wilderness? They went through 40 years of misery. He says to humble you, to prove you and to show you what was in to show what was in your heart. In other words, God uses the hot water of life, the trials, the troublesome circumstances to bring out what is in. Because isn't it hard to deal with things that are inside? Sometimes we don't know what we're struggling with. We don't know what we're feeling. But once it comes out, it's pretty apparent. And we can address it. We can confess it. We can forsake it. Um, one pastor says it this way. Every sin is an inside job. Every sin is an inside job. I like that. 
Another way of saying it, you do what you do because you want what you want. If some sort of sin pours out of us, it was already inside of us, in our hearts. When our desires are at war within us, there's competing pleasures. Well, I want to serve God, but I also just want to serve me. Well, I want to do this, but this. And when pleasures rule our hearts, when they're, conf- when they're in conflict within us, it perpetuates war outside of us. It's as if we march into battle against the people around us, ready to kill or be killed for the cravings of our hearts. So James says our sin, full conflict, is because of our desires. Ultimately, they're inordered, inordinate desires. In other words, misordered. Because, for instance, we said the pleasures are not necessarily wrong, right? They're not necessarily wrong. There are such a thing as sinful pleasures, sinful desires. For instance, stealing is always a sinful desire. We shouldn't desire that. But what about a nice vehicle that doesn't break down on the side of the road? What about a nice warm turkey at Thanksgiving meal? What about good friends? You name it. There are all sorts of good desires, good things in which we can take pleasure. We talked about that this morning in Sunday school. Ecclesiastes 2, he says, it's good for a man to eat and drink and be merry because this is the gift of God. He works hard and then he enjoys the gifts of God. That's not wrong. That's good. But the issue is when those things take the throne of our hearts. When God is displaced as sovereign and we say, my desires will rule. So an inordinate desire is disordered. Um, I sometimes think of them as rogue desires. So a couple questions that help us identify inordinate desires. First of all, are you willing to sin in order to get it? Are you willing to sin in order to get what you want? Whatever it is, if it's that Thanksgiving turkey that's hot and warm, are you willing to sin to get it? Is it, oh boy, dare I enter the kitchen on Thanksgiving Day? What's the kitchen like on Thanksgiving Day at your house? I don't know what yours is like, but sometimes ours is a little stressful. It's a little chaotic. We're all like, we probably are trying to make too many things at once and too many people in the kitchen. Get out! If our desire for a nice Thanksgiving dinner becomes the main desire, we're going to be willing to sin to get it. In other words, I might be willing to light into my kid who brings the toy in the kitchen. Get out of here! Stop coming in here! And I yell at him and I sin. That's hypothetical. It didn't happen this week. For which I'm grateful, but there was plenty of other sin. (laughs) Do you see that? When a desire takes the throne of our hearts, we're willing to sin to get what we want. Other questions in that vein. Is it your constant meditation? Are you willing to stretch the truth, to tell white lies, to get your way, to get people to do what you want? Are you willing to manipulate or harm others, to yell at them, to give them a verbal lashing, The second question, are you willing to sin when you don't get what you want? Are you willing to sin when you don't get what you want? In other words, maybe you want it and you try to sin to get other people to do your way, but then once your desire is thwarted and you don't get what you want, are you willing to sin and get angry or whatever it is because you didn't get what you wanted? That could be a rogue desire, an inordinate desire. If your desire is withheld, do you have an outburst of rage? Do you say words that you shouldn't? Do you lash out at the people around you? Do you just have a little pity party? Woe is me. I didn't get what I wanted. I'm not making fun, but isn't that sometimes how we tend to respond? Maybe not outwardly, but in our hearts, just, oh. Hmm. Proverbs 20 verse 5 says, Counsel or purpose in the heart of of man is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. What that's getting at, imagine a deep well. A deep well is not easy to get water out of because it's deep. You need a long rope and a bucket to lower in and get the water. And the purpose in our hearts, the motivations of our hearts, are sometimes challenging to decipher. 
But that's part of our growth in wisdom. Our growth in understanding is learning to identify what is actually driving us. And what better to hold up and identify our desires than the Word of God. But remember Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart, he says. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. Sometimes we don't even know what's driving us because our hearts are deceitful and just desperately wicked. So there is the source of our conflict. Now let's think for a moment about the slippery slope of conflict. Worldliness breeds conflict. And James has started to talk to us about about what worldliness looks like. But now we hit the slippery slope of conflict. And let me admit to you, this verse, James chapter 4, verse 2, specifically the first section of it, is actually one of the most difficult in the New Testament to translate and to understand how it fits together. And the question is the relationship between the six verbal clauses. He gives us six of them. He says, you lust, you do not have, you kill, you desire to have, you cannot obtain, you fight in war. Those six verbal clauses, how they fit together is challenging. And here on the screen, there's two main ways that people look at it. Either it's a three-clause structure or it's a two-clause structure. So if it's a three-clause structure, it would be you lust and you have not. Those two go together. You kill and covet and cannot obtain. That covet, that's desire to have. And then the final would be you fight and war. The two-clause structure, on the other hand, goes from you lust and you do not have, so you kill. You desire to have and cannot obtain, so you fight and war. And realize it's not the most important thing. We're not going to debate it here this morning. It's okay if you think it's three clause and I don't, or vice versa, that's okay. But it is debated, and people are trying to understand it, and it's worthy of your thought and meditation. But do notice the lack of relationship. Take the three clause structure, for instance. Number two, you kill and covet and cannot obtain. Kill and covet, that's actually the backwards relationship of what James is proposing. He's not saying you kill and then you covet. He's actually saying you covet, so you kill. Our desires drive our behavior. Do you see that? Um, So think through it in that that two-clause structure. It starts with a desire in our hearts. You lust, you desire to have. Then it moves to thwarted desire. You do not have. You cannot obtain. And then our Thwarted inner desire results in external action. You kill, you fight in war. Do you follow that? So that's the slippery slope of conflict. We go from a desire that might even be a decent or a good desire, and we exalt it. We desire it, and then we don't get it. Our desire is thwarted. It's disappointed. It's frustrated. Our expectation isn't met. So then how do we respond to thwarted desire? James says you kill and you fight in war. Um, Here, he he changes words. At the beginning of verse 2, you lust and have not. So the King James translates it the same as in verse 1, but it's a new word. It's epithumeo. Um, Titus chapter 3, verse 3, uses these two words interchangeably. Titus says, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures. Lusts and pleasures, those are our two words. Living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. In other words, our lusts, our desires, and our pleasures, they're interchangeable. Those go hand in hand. Because really, when it comes right down to it, we tend to live pretty hedonistically. In other words, we're about what makes us comfortable. That's just the reality, by nature. Um, Why does James change verbs? You can think about that. But despite the vocabulary change, the idea is still the same of it's our desires driving this behavior. So he says, you lust and you do not have. We had this desire, now it's been frustrated and disappointed. And think about that in the context of church relationships. 
He says, you lust and you do not have, you kill. This is the Greek word phanuo, phanuo, you kill. So this is the question. Is James saying that in his dispersed audience of Christians that were from the church in Jerusalem, they were actually murdering one another as a result of their sinful conflict? Potentially. Or he's using it the same way that his half-brother Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount. Think Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, you shall not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever's angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hellfire. And he talks through that murder is the external act, but anger and hatred in our hearts toward a brother, that's the inner attitude. The same thing in 1 John chapter 3, verse 15. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Well, that's interesting. So James says, you desire, you don't get it, so you murder one another. That's the hatred, the inner turmoil, the anger towards someone around us, the, the glance that we look at each other like, boy, if I could, I'd kill you, but I, am, I don't have the guts. Isn't that sometimes how we think? Isn't that the glare that sometimes steals across the way when we see someone? Hmm. You lust and you do not have, so you kill. The second set of them. You desire to have and cannot obtain, so you fight in war. Desire to have. Um, This is is the verb back in chapter 3, verses 14 and 16. Remember, but if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. He says, for where envying and strife is, there's confusion in every evil work. Now he says, you, kill, you desire to have. This is this jealousy. It's, I want what somebody around me has, and so now I'm kind of mad at them that they have it and I don't. He says, you desire to have, but you cannot obtain. Once again, we go from a desire to a thwarted desire. I didn't get what I want. And James says, so you respond, you fight in war. You fight in war. James resumes the words that he just used. Can you see that okay? Is it big enough? He uses the same words that he just used back in verse one. He said, from whence come wars and fightings among you. Now he just flips it. He says, you fight and you war. Once again, resuming that military language, highlighting, the intensity of this sinful conflict and quarreling within the family, within the church family, etc. So do you see that slippery slope of conflict? We move from I want to I didn't get what I wanted. And so then we respond. Unfortunately, often sinfully. You kill, you fight in war, he says. Uh, Let me illustrate it. Let me illustrate it. Maybe this was your kid, maybe it was somebody else's kid in the store, maybe it was you when you were a kid, or you are a kid. Mommy, I see those Fruit Loops on the shelf. Can I have those, please? I really want them. They'll be really yummy. What does mom say? No, sweetheart, I'm sorry, we can't get the Fruit Loops this week. What have you seen in Sue in the grocery store before? Oh boy, it is all out war because that little kid didn't get what they wanted. A temper tantrum, screaming, fits. Hopefully, you know, it happens. Before you're a parent, you tend to think, that'll never be my kid. And then once you're a parent, you're like, wow, I can't believe it was my kid. I literally thought that. That'll never be my kid. Wow, God really has a way of bringing it back to to humble me. That's a silly illustration of what happens on a daily basis in our hearts. Of desire, they wanted the fruit loops. They didn't get the desire. Mommy said no. And so then we respond sinfully. It moves from desire to thwarted desire to sinful response. That's the slippery slope of what happens when desires take the throne of our hearts. Dangerous. A pastor says it this way. A dissatisfied 
heart is never at peace with God, with itself, or with its fellow man. A dissatisfied heart is never at peace with God, with itself, or with fellow man. When our hearts are dissatisfied, God, you haven't given me everything I need. I don't have everything I want. You're holding out on me. We're not at peace with God. And because we're not at peace with God, there's nothing but inner turmoil. I want it. I don't have it. I need it. I don't have it. And if we have this inner turmoil, inner conflict of our desires at war, it's going to come out. We won't be at peace with one another. A dissatisfied heart is never at peace with God, with itself, or with its fellow man. But isn't that interesting? Didn't Jesus say something about the opposite of conflict? What we should be known as as Christians? John 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. Jesus said, if the world is going to know that we are followers of Jesus Christ, that Ruby Mountain Bible Church, we are Jesus' disciples, they're going to know it, not just by what we say when we're outside, but by how we interact when we're here. By our love for one another, we'll be known as Christ's disciples. Wouldn't it be a shame if we became known as a grumpy, quarreling church? And isn't it silly the things that we tend to quarrel and get frustrated about in the church? Uh, The color of the carpet. They looked at me funny. Well, they ignored me when I walked in the room. You didn't reach out to me. I was discouraged and you didn't even text or call or nothing. Now I'm mad at you. It sounds silly, but aren't these the sorts of things that often we have conflict about in the church? Think of how silly it looks to lost people outside. The color of the carpet, really? That's what you're going to get upset about? Somebody looked at you funny? Do you know what people do to me? Boy, it's hard. But our sinful conflict, James calls us on the carpet. So we've seen worldliness breeds conflict. We go from the source of conflict, our own desires at war in us, to the slippery slope of conflict, how our desires, when they're thwarted, often lead us to sinful responses. But now let's consider, for a few minutes, the selfishness of conflict. This is the end of verse 2 and verse 3. He says, you, you have not because you ask not. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may consume it upon your lusts. He says, you have not because you ask not. This is a familiar verse. And Jesus talked about this, even in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7. Ask and it shall be given. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asks receives, he that seeks finds, and to him who knocks it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you, whom if his son asks bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father, which is in heaven, give good things to them that ask him? Realize this goes to the core of our conception of who God is. God is not a malevolent father in the sky who does not want to give us good things. Quite the contrary. Jesus said, we even as human parents, we're evil, but we give our children good things. When they ask for us, when they ask for something to eat, we don't give them a rock. How silly would that be? When they ask for some fish to have for breakfast or lunch or dinner. I don't know. If you eat fish for breakfast, good on you. When they ask for a fish, we don't give them a snake. That'd be dangerous. Well, Jesus says, how much more? Your heavenly father, if you'll just ask, he'll give good things. And we see to the very core of our issue with sinful conflict and with out of control desires, 
often our sinful conflict and anger, etc., results from our own prayerlessness. If we had only asked, God would have graciously given it. James 1.5, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Do you realize God in his very nature is a giver? He loves to give good gifts, if we'll only ask. But then James says, there's a second reason that you might not be receiving things when you do ask for them. Because you ask and do not receive, because you ask amiss. You ask amiss. This word amiss, it's just the adverb form of the word evil. In other words, you ask wickedly, or you ask wrongly. Well, in what way do we ask wrongly, or with the wrong motives? He says that you may consume it upon your lusts. The word consume, it has the idea of spending. We just want to acquire so that we can spend it on our own pleasures. Luke chapter 15, verse 14, uses the word, the prodigal son, he receives his father's inheritance early and he goes out and he spends all that he has. And then, he, then he's in poverty. He spent it. That's what we do often. We come to God and we ask, but God doesn't give it to us. Why? Because we asked because we wanted to spend it upon our own pleasures. Hmm. He says to spend it upon your own lusts. That's the same word. That's the same word, hadanon, that we just got back up in verse 1. And then that word lust in verse 2, the epithumeo, connects back with chapter 1. He says, don't blame God when you're tempted because temptation, each person is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin and sin brings forth death. So we might ask the question, why are my prayers not getting answered? I don't know if you've ever had that before where you have something that's on your heart. You say, it's not something selfish because that's an obvious reason. If all we're asking about is what we want, God's not going to grant that request. God does not answer selfish prayer. But there's many texts. Here's a little scattering of them. Psalm 66, verse 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. To regard, it's the idea of to harbor or to cherish sin in my heart. When I do that, God turns a deaf ear. Not that he can't hear us, he won't. Proverbs 15, 29, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. James brings it up in chapter 5. He says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Of a righteous man. There's a very real sense. Well, let me read one more. Where'd it go here? Well, you get the point. Oh, it's Proverbs 28, verse 9. He that turneth away his ear from hearing the law, the instruction, even his prayer shall be an abomination. If we refuse to learn what the word of God says and then to live by it, our prayers to God are an abomination. They're disgusting. Because God's already given us all of this wonderful instruction by which to live our lives. And it's the blessed life, the one who delights in his word. When we reject the counsel God already gave us, our prayers are an abomination, he says. And then 1 Peter 3, that's the text that talks about a husband who refuses to dwell with his wife according to knowledge um, as a fellow heir of grace. It says his prayers will be hindered. So worldliness breeds conflict. We see the spiritual state of conflict in verse 4. You adulterers and adulteresses, know you not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. He says we're adulteresses. When we love the world and the things in the world, we are cheating on God. It's spiritual adultery. A serious crime. And James doesn't pull punches. He says you're an adulterer. You're an adulteress. 
if you love the things of the world. And James gathers that imagery from the prophets. Think Isaiah 54, verses 5 through 6, Jeremiah 3, verse 20, and then the entire book of Hosea is written about that. God says, Israel, you have cheated on me. You have committed adultery by going after idols. And he pictures it with Hosea, who marries a prostitute. And she continually cheats on Hosea, and yet he remains faithful in his love to her. That's the picture. He says, you are committing spiritual adultery. And he says, then, know you not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Friendship with the, mer- with the world. That's where we adopt worldly values. The things the world wants, we want. The things the world treasures, we treasure. And he says to be the friend of the world is to be the enemy of God. Hostility. He sums it up, end of verse 4, Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Is the enemy of God. The concept he gives us there is the person who purposes, who chooses, I'm going to pursue the things of the world. God will let you, but you line yourself up as his enemy. And then verse 5 is rather challenging to interpret as well. Do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit that dwells in us lusts to envy? Um, We'll address that in the next sermon because it connects really well with verses 6 through 10. But suffice it to say for now, God is a jealous God. We know that from Deuteronomy 44, verse 24. The Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. God wants our hearts to be wholly loyal to him because of look at all he's done for us. Finally, we get the solution to conflict in verse 6. But he gives more grace. Wherefore he says, God resists the proud but gives grace unto the humble. Realize the solution to our sinful conflict is receiving the grace of God through humility. Until we're willing to humble ourselves before God, we will receive no grace. God resists us. I want to close with the thought of worldliness. Have you been flirting with the world? Are trucks and jeeps and side-by-sides Properties, garages, stuff, our focus? Are we constantly in acquisition mode? I just want one more. I just want this or I want that. Do you want to be the sports star that everyone looks to and says, wow, they're so cool? Do we go through life expecting things to go our way and throwing temper tantrums when they don't? When someone cuts us off or they're going slow in the fast lane over the summit, how do we respond? Are we indulging sinful desires that ought not even be entertained? 1 John chapter 2, John says, Do not love the world, neither the things in the world. Because the one who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. These things in the world are passing away. They're all going to burn. And it's interesting. Paul said concerning Demas, he says, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. We must take great care. If we choose to love this world, you can make that choice. But if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you profess, I trust Christ, I follow him. And yet you then live to love the things of the world. That's what led Demas to forsake Christ to forsake Paul. What a dangerous path to tread. All sin has pleasure for a season, but it's temporary. Psalm 16, verse 11. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. May we choose, rather than allowing desires to exalt themselves on the thrones of our heart, may we choose instead to delight in God, the giver of every good gift, the one who offers infinite and eternal pleasures at his right hand in glory. That's the challenge that James brings to us. If you see conflict in your life, it's because of your own desires, 
that already are at war within you. Here's what we want to do. We want to transition. We'll sing a song just for a moment. The song, All I Have is Christ. And Andrew's going to come and lead for us. So we'll sing, All I Have is Christ. And, and then we'll...